Hello, and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast where we explore compelling ideas and some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Chris. And I'm Brittany. And this week, we're continuing our read-through of Mockingjay, looking at chapter 23. So could you start us off with a recap, please? A recap? A recap. The group dresses in capital clothes and makeup in the house of the woman that Katniss just killed, and then head out into the street among capital citizens. Sirens start blaring, and photos of Katniss and company are projected everywhere, so Cressida leads them to a less-than-ideal safe house, the fur underwear shop of Tigris, who used to be a games stylist a long time ago. She hides them in a concealed basement, and Katniss assures her that she will kill Snow. The group rests and cleans their wounds, and Katniss thinks about the nine people who have been killed in the last 24 hours. She confesses that she made up the assassination mission, but the others try to reassure her that everyone knew it was a fake mission. Yet Peta's words are the only ones that really reach her. They then work on a plan to still assassinate Snow, and that night Katniss overhears a conversation between Peta and Gale talking about their relationship with Katniss. The chapter ends with Gale saying Katniss will choose whoever she thinks she can't survive without. Nice bro moment. <laughs> Just dudes being bros. It's better than a snow moment. That's true. Okay, well, let's head into our discussion then. So we're going to start with our striking moments, the moments that stood out to us during this read-through. What are your striking moments this week? The main one that I had is kind of their reactions in this aftermath of the Mutt attack and mm. everything that has happened, all of the deaths. Peta, it seems like he's trying to hold on, screaming into a pillow, uh, or biting down on a pillow at least. Gale is trying to stay conscious from his blood loss. Pollux is just weeping mm -hmm. because his brother is dead, and Cressida is just pale and exhausted. And so it, it was just hitting me how this is the first time anyone from District 13 or the Capitol have been in something similar to the games. Mm -hmm. Obviously, everybody from District 13 who was with them is dead now mm -hmm. but we get to see some of the or we have to see some of the capitals reactions i think it's just a really striking idea that people who i mean not not that they've had all the privilege especially someone like pollux but has still had the privilege of not having to be reaped mm -hmm. uh, and go through that from age 12 through 18 you know mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I was just thinking about that. Although, uh, one of our listeners, Dallas, had pointed out in a conversation I was having with him at one point, this idea that he kind of sees Snow as having been in the games and Songbird and Snakes. Interesting. Because he was in the arena for a time and these are life and death things. And so, so that's, that's an interesting take as well. Um, but I guess for these people, in their group from District 13 and the Capitol, like, they still volunteer for it in a way that other people don't really. Like, sure, there's volunteering that happens among the careers, mm -hmm. but 
again, we don't know exactly what that means. Uh, we don't know what the process of that is. And yeah, if they're groomed for it yeah. from even younger than 12 and regardless, someone from the district is going in, you know, so yeah. it's it's not volunteered in the same way as the film crew mm-hmm. is in this circumstance. District 13, we're not totally sure how everything was chosen or forced or decided or whatnot, but I think it just, like, gives more gravity to what the kids from the districts have been going through for 75 years. Mm-hmm. Because their sacrifices weren't for a cause. Yeah. They were for this show of power and oppression mm-hmm. um, and tyranny. These people who died just now and the people who have survived just now their actions were still for this cause of overthrowing the capital and the inequalities here and so they they sacrificed the unit the unit sacrificed themselves the children were sacrificed by the capital exactly exactly so yeah i was just kind of thinking about that and and how yeah i mean katniss and Peta have been through this before Mm-hmm. through actual games and Peta it's more like he was forced into it like he is kind of sacrificed here as well yeah and so yeah just thinking about as sad as all of these deaths have been and they've been very sad as you probably heard last episode mm-hmm. <laughs> but compared to compulsory forced child sacrifice every year for 75 years you know is kind of just a reminder of why they're doing what they're doing, uh, why they're making these sacrifices, is, is to stop this system. I mean, not just the Hunger Games system, but everything that goes along with the oppression of the capital. Yeah. So that was my main one. And then another small one was just how the capital citizens jump out of the way of the peacekeepers. Hmm. That's probably something that's relatively new Mm -hmm. that the capital citizens have had to get used to. The presence of a military or policing force that probably is not generally at least seen a lot of, except maybe during games or, or things like that, but... Um, and, he, and then it's in a more, like, ceremonial kind of way. I can imagine that being, like, parades and things like mm. that more than they are as a military exercise. Yeah, or, you know, as these big events are happening, they're, yeah. like, there to, you know, make sure people can celebrate the Hunger Games mm-hmm. safely or whatever it is. So, yeah, just thinking about how quickly they've had to learn uh, and adjust to... A force that, I don't know, might feel, like, maybe for some people it would make them feel mm, safer, Mm -hmm. considering everything that's happening. But for others, I don't know, it could feel like an invading force that they have to jump out of the way of. Mm -hmm. And if many of those peacekeepers are from District 2, you Mm -hmm. know, that's also going to be its own tension, too. Yeah. What about you? Yeah, I actually took a lot of notes. And so I kind of organized them into two different focuses. The first being how Katniss's narration is still really telling, uh, both about her own character, but also about how she sees the world 
Mm. For example, when they are putting on the capital clothes, she describes the shoes as silly, which mm-hmm. is such a interesting word to use there uh, because it shows how they are the opposite of the utility of the boots that she wears and that she prides herself on or that she, she relies on so much mm-hmm. um, that instead they take their boots off and hide them and put on silly shoes, which I think is just a, a really telling word. And yeah, it shows how Colin's word choices can often be really spot on. And that could be a touch point in and of itself, totally. right? Like the utility of shoes having an important purpose and then shoes as fashion, mm-hmm. even when they can be incredibly uncomfortable, impractical, dangerous, you know, things like that. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Another example of language that kind of was revealing to me was when Katniss is talking to Tigress about her past and she thinks somewhere her tiger tail flicks with displeasure. And before this reading, I always thought that that was another modification, that she had an actual tail. Mm-hmm. This read-through, I went back and I realized that they had never described an actual tail in her features. Mm. That this was Katniss imagining this tail, imagining more of Tigris's character and reading her feline attributes so deeply that she kind of goes along with them and sees how when Tigress is upset or frustrated in this moment, she has this metaphorical tail swiping. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, I always assumed it was a modification that had some sort of, like, brain chip, like, implantation mm-hmm. component that, I don't know, sci-fi, sci-fi, sci-fi-ness, <laughs> you know. I did too, yeah. And I, which is why, like, I took the second to be like, wait, did that actually happen? Mm. Like, or is that described? And maybe it still is. Yeah, but it could be either way. But the somewhere also makes me think a bit, think about it as mm-hmm. metaphorical. Yeah. Um. So yeah, it's just I think a, a, yeah another interesting question, another interesting sentence that is not a description of what's happening by an omniscient narrator, but is Katniss's interpretation and mm-hmm. creativity on what's going on. And the last example of language being revealing was when Katniss notes that Plutarch doesn't care who gets killed as long as his games are a success. Mm-hmm. And we've been talking a lot about how Katniss and Finnick and others are seeing their experience in the capital as like being in the games again. But we've mostly been talking about how it's like snow putting on the games again or the capital putting on the games for them again. Mm-hmm. And here I think it's also really fascinating how Katniss explicitly sees Plutarch as still being a game maker too. Yeah. In her wider life. In I mean, he's never not been to her, yeah. right? Yeah. Uh and so yeah, I just think that that's that's continued like powerful use of, of the, the term the games and mm-hmm. and of that language to show the weightiness behind her relationships with even allies like Plutarch. Mm. Yeah, and honestly, I think it it shows either or maybe both <laughs> her comfortableness with Cressida and Pollux, mm. because this is a person that they've been involved with to even get there, right, yeah. <laughs> to the District 13 as a part of the Capitol Rebels, and so 
to so clearly state her cynical Mm -hmm. perspective on Plutarch either is, yeah, that she's just comfortable and, like, trusts them or that she's just too tired to filter herself. And, you know, maybe it's a combination of both. But, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, totally. Well, my second category of striking (laughs) moments had to do with... I didn't realize we were adding a whole subsection. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah. has to do with Katniss and Peeta's relationship, where I saw a lot of interesting developments there, particularly because of my past intention to pay more attention to that mm-hmm. uh, over these chapters. Um, and so, for example, I saw it as really interesting how Katniss turns the real or not real game on its head, mm-hmm. and she asks Peeta, real or not real, uh, when he says the line about blood poisoning, which like he said in the first games. I, yeah, I just think that's another moment where Katniss is showing genuine interest in PETA and his perspective and his knowledge and how what he remembers and trust in his response. Mm-hmm. You know, that, that obviously she does remember it happening, but by saying that kind of question to him, she's in a subtle way communicating that she believes in his vision of reality mm-hmm. in a way that certainly at the beginning of the real or not real game, she had such a different outlook on PETA and how much she could trust him and how much she valued the way he saw the world or what he remembered. Um, and it's also, I think, in a way, challenging him to trust his own mm. ability to deduce whether something is real or not real. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I think the first times that I read through these chapters, and in this chapter in particular, when we start seeing Peta having a conversation with Gail about who Katniss is going to end up with, I kind of was like, how did Peter get back here when just recently he was still more combative with Katniss? And I think that these small moments were ones that I didn't really pay as much attention to. Mm-hmm. And so this read through, it, it feels much more earned than uh, I think I had recognized in my previous readings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I guess my other small point was just noting how Peta is using the pain of the handcuffs to keep himself focused mm-hmm. and how Katniss is concerned with that. Her, yeah. like, immediate wanting to address at the, that pain and take his handcuffs off. Another sign of, of trust in him mm-hmm. as their numbers are dwindling and as they've gone through more and more experiences together. And as she's also decided at the end of the last chapter that he's important to her and keeping him... And not letting snow take him away is important to her. Um, And even though that doesn't mean that he's obviously cured of all of his hijacking, I think that there's still a lot more that she's willing to, a lot more trust that she's willing to give to him. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But let's head into our next section. This is our From Another Point of View, where we read through the chapter through perspectives other than Katniss's. So what perspective did you bring for this week? 
unsurprisingly, Tigris. Hmm. This isn't a big spoiler or anything, but if, if you haven't read The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, you find out literally in the first couple pages that Tigris is Snow's cousin. Mm-hmm. And they're super close. Like, they live together. Mm-hmm. It's not, like, an extended cousin. They play significant roles in each other's lives. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so... <laughs> I love the moment when Katniss takes her scarf down and it's like, oh, this is Katniss. And she just, like, <laughs> growls. Mm-hmm. Because she's just an 87-year-old woman. <laughs> just like, oh, <laughs> why are you here right now? Everyone is going to be after you. Mm-hmm. I have to go move this heavy coat rack <laughs> right now. <laughs> it's just great. So, yeah, I don't don't know. I was just thinking about, I mean, there's so many questions that I have, but really thinking about it from her point of view, obviously she and President Snow are estranged. We don't know what has gone down and if she's smiling when Katniss says that she's going to kill Snow, Mm -hmm. you know, like... Clearly, she despises him and thinks that he needs to die. Mm-hmm. But even with that, you know, I just wonder what it would kind of feel like. You know, she's a part of this. It's not a royal family, but it might as well be, yeah. right? And she hasn't been brought to the presidential mansion for protection or anything like that as the rebels are in the capital. Like, they're taking street after street. And so it just kind of shows the distance between them and, I don't know, maybe loneliness. Mm. She she gave so much for this person uh, when she was younger and helped take care of him, helped raise him, you know, all of these things. And, uh, you know, to the, to the best of her ability when she's only three years older than him. Yep. And this how little care or lack of thought at all would be given to her and i was thinking about her gathering food for them and making katniss fur leggings Mm. you know how long has it been since she's had people in her daily life that she can interact with in a relational way not as a customer and you're the business owner. Because in Songbirds and Snakes, it seemed like acts of service would have been one of her top love languages. She was constantly doing things for other people. And so, yeah, I was just kind of thinking about her, even in this war situation. And as we, we've talked about Snow, the anxiety he might be experiencing because... there's war again Mm -hmm. um that he's involved in or i mean he's affected by in certain ways not in like the food and shelter sort of ways as when he was a child but you know that must be bringing up some things for her as well Mm -hmm. because she also lived through this war when she was young and had potentially had to be sexually exploited and things like that to to get by and so Yeah, I was just kind of thinking about it bringing up a lot of feelings or anxieties or 
sadness, fear, and then potentially being so isolated and alone. Yeah. And then suddenly there are these people here who you don't know, but you know about. <laughs> and you've probably been watching Riveted <laughs> for the past couple years and knowing that some of these people are from the capital who are fighting and clearly you have Katniss, Peta, and Gail. And so, yeah, I was just thinking about these people, like, kind of invading her space. But it being the first time in a long time that she can, yeah, I don't know, maybe feel like she has something to give, mm. something to offer as somebody who is elderly at this point, you know? She's yeah. nearing 90. Even if she's barely eating, it's like they're eating, you know? And mm -hmm. just that kind of communal feeling of of being engaged with people in a, in a serious way. Knowing that, yeah, she's now uh, very involved in the treason <laughs> of, <laughs> of uh, harboring people trying to assassinate Snow. Yeah, I, I kind of wonder if she also, even if she wants it to happen, uh, if if she would feel any conflicting thoughts about, yeah, housing the people who may go kill her cousin, yeah. even if her cousin is a heinous person. <laughs> and just the fact that she didn't even say anything until mm -hmm. the next day. Yeah, kind of speaks to isolation, and, and maybe it's isolation that is the result of knowing this person who you've loved and who has been an important part of your life is doing these horrible things and maybe just isolating herself yeah. over time. Yeah, that is interesting. It's also making me kind of realize that Tigress never speaks about herself. Mm -hmm. It's always about the people who she's bringing in, mostly Katniss, uh, you know, saying that nobody can handle her, <laughs> nobody knows how to handle her, or, you know, just providing them food or whatever it might be. Mm -hmm. um, and any questions about her and, and what's happened to her, she gives answers through body language or growls or what have you. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I wonder if there is something about she doesn't want to vocalize all of the complex emotions mm -hmm. and all of the complexities that go in her past and in her relationships. Well, I mean, I imagine it would be very difficult to know that someone you've helped take care of as an older sibling sort of relationship yeah. has become this serial killing tyrant, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what that would do to you. Totally. It just seems terrible. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But y your point about her being of service again really hit home for me because it reminded me of, of my grandmother, who was always someone who prided herself on, on always working. Up until she literally could not do it anymore, she would sweep the house every day. She would be going up and down stairs. She would be cooking for everyone. She would like just felt that that was such a core part of her identity and how she related with the family. Mm. And I remember when she would be cooking, 
she typically wouldn't sit down with the family to eat with us. She would at times kind of pick at things while she's eating. Hmm. But a lot of times she made it seem like she was kind of like trying not to show us that she was also eating and stuff. Like Hmm. she specifically would often have a beer, an open beer open in the refrigerator that she would open their fridge, take a drink out of when she thinks no one was watching, and then close the door. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know if that had to do with the fact that it was alcohol or, mm-hmm. you know, what was going on, but it just kind of was this, this yeah, weird element that I think had to do with these kinds of traditional notions of her being, yeah, of service um, and, and needing to take care of everyone and stuff, which some of which was certainly, like, grounded in misogyny and and patriarchy and and stuff Mm -hmm. like that too but yeah when you're talking about tigress and how she doesn't eat herself but she wants to provide food for them it kind of yeah made me even more sympathetic to that aspect of what she was providing Mm -hmm. for them and what it might have meant for her yeah yeah definitely and then the other one that I had is just really small. I was just thinking about Cressida also eavesdropping mm. on Peta and Gail's conversation about their relationships with Katniss. And just like, despite everything that is going on, despite the horrors of the past 24 hours, kind of smiling to herself <laughs> and like, oh my god, like <laughs> these teenagers we're in a war this is a war zone but like these teenagers are still teenagers <laughs> conversely she might also be thinking oh i wish we still had our camera equipment <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this would make for great tape <laughs> that's hilarious well Cresto actually was the perspective that i wanted to oh, cool. talk about let's go for it not about that moment though that is hilarious but more about how she helps to kind of serve as a guide here in the in, in this chapter. Mm-hmm. Uh, you mentioned how she was pale and exhausted and how Katniss kind of notes that she's actually possibly the most in the best shape of anyone other than Katniss, although probably including Katniss at the beginning of the chapter where everyone else is kind of struggling to keep it together, understandably. Mm-hmm. And Cressida kind of takes the lead. Um, and she really shows a lot of, like, determination where everyone is falling apart and she wants to be of service to Katniss. She wants to to be able to help in those ways. So she, first off, is the person who knows where they are mm-hmm. and then is able to guide them to a, you know, possible location, a, you know, imperfect but a safe house and she knows the back alleys and how to get there. And I was particularly struck when she takes them onto the street that Tigress's shop is on. And she starts kind of saying this line about how she is going to help them find these fashion pieces at a much lower price than they'd get at other shops and things like that. And I thought it was just a really great example of how savvy she is mm-hmm. as she's doing this. Because not only does she actually know her way around everywhere, but she knows how to act in different parts of the capital, mm-hmm. in different areas. Because she highlights, you know, what 
would have been said by someone shopping in that area specifically, mm-hmm. uh, which is clearly an area that is not yet yeah, the main street shopping streets, but places that are not as successful, not as popular, you know, fringe for whatever reason. So yeah, I thought that was a really interesting way that Cressida was not only like using her knowledge, but kind of trying to step up. When I was trying to imagine her perspective, I saw her as kind of, especially after the sacrifices of the last 24 hours, trying to to ensure that she could provide the unique knowledge that she has. Mm-hmm. She couldn't have protected Katniss or the other people in the unit as well as anyone else, right? She, she even with a gun, wouldn't have been a sharpshooter. But what she could do is she could help guide Katniss. She could help Katniss blend in both in how she looks, but also in how she acts. I could really see her kind of stepping into that role, really wanting to fulfill it, even when she herself is unsure. You know, she brings her to... to Tigress's shop, which she says is an imperfect solution. She looks at Katniss after they meet Tigress and is like, are you sure you want to do this? Like, mm-hmm. even then, even after she's brought the unit there, she still, I think, is showing how she's not entirely sure that this is the right decision, but she wants to, yeah, just help Katniss in any way that she can and give Katniss the option of choosing whether this is the right path for them. Mm. You know, and she continues to try to be helpful. She she helps put together the furs and the food for everyone and organize that. She helps... Ask if they should set up a guard. Mm-hmm. She wants to help convince Katniss that everyone made their own choices and believed in her. Mm-hmm. And that this mission hasn't just been a waste of their lives. Mm-hmm. And she's doing that as she's as Cressida herself has lost half of her crew. Mm-hmm. and has been through things that she's never been trained for and never been prepared for. Yeah, I just was really admiring her, not just her savvy, which I think I always appreciated about the character, but her determination in this chapter and the extent to which she is, even as she is struggling with all of the things that the unit's struggling with, she is still working to be as much of an asset as she possibly can. Yeah, she's pretty great. Yeah, I'm a fan. But let's head into our next section. These are our touch points, where we see parallels between the narrative and what we see in our own society. One you kind of already mentioned a little bit about they were walking through where Tigress's shop is. Mm-hmm. And I just thought it was really interesting that they passed a store that buys used goods. Mm-hmm. Because I was like... Is this a thrift store? Like, that's fascinating because, I mean, it makes sense that there would be different economic statuses within the capital itself. Mm -hmm. And so I I just love that added layer to the capital's structure Mm -hmm. that everybody is not just equal, as we've been talking about this entire read through. The United States is like the capital. Mm-hmm. Not only the United States, it could be several different countries within our world, but <laughs> I feel like the U.S. is the pinnacle of that, right? Absolutely. Of the exploitation of 
capitalism and excess and, you know, all of these things, yet still within the United States, there are vast differences between economics and um, compared to the rest of the world, we are still privileged, Mm -hmm. right? With running water, with clean drinking water for most places, Mm -hmm. uh, just like straight from our tap with, you know, all of these different things, even, even though we need way more social services and safety nets and things like that, we still have some that, you know, many other countries have none of, right? And so I think it's, it's great to see that in the capital, it's like that too, because Mm -hmm. that, that's our situation. And for some people it would be, yeah, like they're still shopping, (laughs) but Cresta's like, wait until you see the prices. It's half of what you pay on the avenues, you know? So it's, it's clear that there are people who are looking for bargains who don't have as much to spend, or maybe, you know, there's a lot of people in debt in the capital too, like we've talked about in the past. So seeing that there are these aspects, but the shopping is still happening, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Maybe someone really does need warm, a, a warm pair of pants so they go for these fur leggings but for the most part this would probably be a more luxury (laughs) item and so yeah i just think it's even in the united states oftentimes people who have less resources to use still are using money for consumerism in, in some way shape or form yeah not everybody but most right and so, yeah, I just, I thought it was a really great way to build out the world of Penem of, of just a bit more, again, with just a quick little sentence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That was also kind of my first touch point. Oh, interesting. Okay. But from a different perspective, okay. um, because I was also thinking about how, yeah, you know, discount stores exist within our society, um, within any wealthy metropolis, there's going to be areas of that metropolis that are also going to cater to people who are impoverished because Mm -hmm. you can't have a metropolis without having an impoverished class there. Yeah. And how this often is going to have more affordable goods, but that also means that the goods are going to be cheaper in many ways, not just in price, but in how they're constructed you know, they're going to be made in, in ways where cutting the costs of their production or manufacture will be paramount to ensure that they have that low price. That typically means that they're also being created with less oversight. Uh, and so we have things like sweatshops mm-hmm. that can mass produce them for lower prices, but we also have things that are created outside of government regulation. So they might be more toxic more likely to cause issues for the customer because they're not protected uh, or they haven't gone through any kind of regulation process. They're certainly going to not last as long, which kind of brings in the poverty tax of having to buy something over and over and over again, ultimately spending more money on it than if you had just invested in something that was more expensive and made of better quality to begin with. But people don't have the funds to invest in that. So, Mm -hmm. you know... Uh, this becomes a, a larger issue. Uh, so yeah, I think that that's a 
I agree that that's a really important part of the capital to highlight. But I do think that this chapter in focusing almost exclusively on Tigris's store misses a bit of that context in actual society because it does seem like Tigris's store is still a luxury and is more in this area because it's unpopular than it is because it's catering to a market that doesn't have the funds to buy necessities elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I was kind of wondering if it was a situation like that she started this business decades ago mm-hmm. and this is basically her leftover stock that she's been living off of for all of this time. So it's because like generally fur is very expensive. Yeah. She has all of these pelts and does she have that much money? I guess technically anything over the very bare minimum of what's necessary to clothe yourself is a luxury, right? Mm. Not luxury in the expensive side of it, but it's not necessary, right? And so buying these, buying fur underwear, if, if it's the same price as buying a third pair of pants technically you don't necessarily need that third pair of pants Mm -hmm. you know are they really that different Mm -hmm. yeah yeah i just when i was thinking of how i was glad to see the inclusion of this type of area in the capital it also made me think about the limitations of how the narrative portrays it Mm -hmm. um and, and it kind of also tangentially made me start thinking about how oftentimes the now in our society the biggest threat to those livelihoods, the people who make money off of selling discounted wares, who have often been doing so for generations, mm-hmm. uh, is gentrification, where yeah. you see they maintain their status there because they don't have the investment to redevelop into places that are going to be, you know, meet the demands of new higher class people who are in the area. And so the developers who do have those funds are going to monopolize those markets and uh, oftentimes force out those who remain. And, and yeah, your, your point about maybe this is something that went out of style decades ago, um, but she didn't have the money to translate into a new business operation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that can definitely be a, a way that gentrification occurs in the long term, too. Absolutely. Well, no, I think there's also another point that not only lower income capital people would necessarily be shopping there Mm -hmm. because there are people with a fine amount or plenty or excess in disposable income that still want a bargain that still want to buy cheaper because then they can buy more then they can constantly change out their clothes you know there are even like subscription box services right for clothes so you can like constantly be getting new things it could also be people like that blowing money because it keeps them entertained totally yeah the other touch point that i had is just a small one i was thinking about you know at the beginning of this chapter pollux is grieving his brother Mm -hmm. it's such a short 
moment that's given to it, but I was thinking about Castor and Pollux in the Greek myth. Mm. Pollux asked Zeus to let him share his own immortality with his twin so that they could stay together forever. <laughs> and then they were transformed into the constellation Gemini. As... Fascinating. I didn't realize that that was Castor and Pollux yeah. in mythology. And I'm like, oh, that's so sad. Yeah. <laughs> Just for a really sad touch point. Not that they're not always sad in a way, but <laughs> just that they're twins and clearly they get have gotten along so well. They mean so much to each other. And thinking about that, like, kind of built into the, the back end of their story. But this isn't the story where gods can do these, mm -hmm. you know, miraculous things. These are things that happen to real people. And yeah, and, you know, the fact that there is this Greek myth also shows the power of familial relationships in being a central aspect of cultural stories. Mm -hmm. uh, and yeah, that, that their relationship, I think, is really powerful because of that. And it also, you know, we've talked about Roman mm -hmm. influence on the capital and everything, but here obviously is Greek influence. Totally. Um, but I mean, they, they share things, right? But, yeah. Well, I wonder if there is a Romanization of Castor and Pollux that mm -hmm. have Latin names too, but yeah, fascinating. Yeah. What about you? What are your touch points? So we talked about the kind of economic aspects before, but I had one other touch point, which was sparked by the comment about how Phoenix' tell-all is what led to Snow not going out in public. <laughs> and I still hope that's true. I know, right? <laughs> and one, I think it's it's just wonderful to to highlight how important that moment was beyond just the narrative that we were experiencing through mm -hmm. Katniss's eyes. But yeah, those kinds of profound effects that Finnick's choice had on Snow and on the capital society made me start thinking about kind of wider ideas of some of the skills that I, I try to teach my students in my history classes. When I try to help them think historically and think critically a lot of that comes down to trying to help them to think about things with complexity and with understanding contingency. So complexity, obviously, is, is just that simple answers very rarely explain history mm -hmm. uh, ex or explain society. Things didn't occur the way that they did or for the reasons that they did because of simple reasons, but because of many overlapping choices and actions that occurred that happened within complex historical contexts and systems and, and all these other kinds of elements. But this other idea in contingency is based on the idea that essentially things could have happened differently if people made different choices. If different actions were made, history could have turned out in a different way. Mm -hmm. That there is no destined outcome thinking about things as if they are just kind of dominoes that were going to fall to lead to the present mm -hmm. takes away that agency of those people who made the choices they made and all the different paths that things have could have taken if those choices were different. 
so yeah, I think this is just an example of Collins's really great writing that her own narrative is complex and it deals with these kinds of overlapping forms of agency that choices build on one another that sure Finnick chose to give that interview and tell those stories for reasons that were important in the moment but his choice to do that made a real impact on capital society as a whole and especially on the target which was snow and that is having an effect on this later mission that's happening af even after Finnick has been killed and yeah, I just think that it's a uh, a really good example of how this narrative, this story, doesn't cleanly follow one thing to the next. It's not dominoes that are placed in order that kind of lead very simply from one to the other, but that there is a wider world and wider contingencies that are occurring, and that the decisions that characters make have deep outcomes and effects, which I think illustrates one of the themes of the Hunger Games, which is agency, which is people within the hierarchical, oppressive systems they're a part of can still make their own choices and that those choices are important. Yeah, yeah, definitely. That That is really interesting because it was a while ago that we heard Finnick's account. Um, yes, it was great. Yeah. Well, let's head into our next section. These are our wonderments. What we're questioning after reading this chapter. Why don't you go first? I mentioned during the POV section that, you know, I had a lot of questions about Tigris. And so, mm -hmm. yeah, I, I thought it was really interesting Katniss's assessment of Tigris not knowing her. Like, we didn't know her prior mm -hmm. to Songbirds and Snakes. Katniss thinks... This woman is the embodiment of capital shallowness. Mm. It was just a really interesting line because she's not, because we know more about Tigress. Mm -hmm. But we also know that when compared to someone like Cinna, and Katniss is like, you know, she's no Cinna. Yeah. <laughs> and that's true. You know, she, all of these years, it seems like, hasn't been willing to sacrifice in a public way like Sin did that would result in her torture and death. Yeah. And as a cousin of President Snow, speaking out against him much earlier in his career, as he was poisoning people, running for re-election, in quotes, you know, things like that, like, that potentially could have had a big impact. Mm-hmm. Especially if all of these people are turning against Snow potentially now because of what Finnick revealed. Yeah, it just, it does really make me wonder how involved she has been in the rebellion because Plutarch told Cressida that mm -hmm. they could trust her. So that means she must have some relationship with Plutarch and he knows they can trust her. And so... I wonder how that relationship formed. Yeah. Was he like, you know, an apprentice or whatever on the scene when she was still a stylist? And mm. uh, I just, yeah, just so curious. And is there anything that she has been doing behind the scenes all of this time or as long as when she decided to 
be rebellious in certain ways or, or at least dissent from what the capital was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, but she also doesn't know or doesn't have a relationship with Cressida or Pollux to capital rebels, you know? And so, uh, yeah, just fascinated. Wish we knew more. <laughs> yeah. I wonder if maybe she was someone who Plutarch like reached out to and who didn't want to join the rebellion, but mm-hmm. also didn't turn him in. So he knew that she wasn't going to put them in danger necessarily, but she's also not going to be, yeah, one of the major supports of the rebellion. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, it, a, lot, a lot of interesting questions there for sure. Yeah. I mean, she's obviously older. Mm-hmm. So how active in a rebellion generally is an yeah, 87-year-old person going to be. Can't flee to District 13 very easily. <laughs> yeah. But also, who knows, maybe she did some sort of rebellious act and instead of killing her, Snow kind of banished her to Ow. out of the games and... Yeah. Yeah, I just, I want to know <laughs> so much. <laughs> what about you? What's your wonderment? I had a couple, actually. Uh, one was, I was wondering what landmarks Cressida and other capital citizens would be able to use to know where they are from sight. Mm. Particularly because we saw how earlier capital architecture was very similar. And the only thing that was different was kind of the painted colors. But there are only so many colors for a huge city like that. So I wonder if maybe they're because they're closer in it's not the same case, or if, you know, there are other ways that people tell things apart. Street signs, other things that we obviously don't think about ourselves seeing in our own lives, but tell us where we're situated in the world. Yeah, I just made me think about kind of what that infrastructure looks like mm-hmm. in the capital. And my other question was, where does capital fur come from? Is it real? Do they raise animals? for this or is it synthetic you know i would grow it in a lab i could totally see them Mm -hmm. growing in a lab absolutely Mm -hmm. but at the same time i could imagine that some fur perhaps might be from animals because i could see the capital having the fact that a living thing died to make this fur Mm -hmm. make it more valuable or make it confer a higher status that this is real fur sure we can create fur very easily because of sci-fi shenanigans but this was an actual animal that we slaughtered for our own amusements. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, just uh, as we are spending more time in the capital, in a you know not a way that's controlled by the mechanisms of the games, it's raising these new questions for me as we're going through. Totally. Yeah. Now I'm just thinking that. I could totally see them also being like, these select 12 items were made from the pelts of the wolf mutts in the 74th games, you know? Mm -hmm. Like, they would totally do something like that, right? I was a sponsor of Glimmer. I'm going to buy Glimmer's mutt pelt, you know? Like, they would do that, right? Absolutely. Awful. (laughs) (laughs) just coming to that conclusion now yeah right it's taken me three books but i've I've just realized how awful these people are you didn't realize in chapter 22 you realized in 23 absolutely yeah 22 is nothing but the pelts 
Shut your mouth. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's go into our last segment, our intentions, what we want to take away from this conversation. I think my takeaway is just from that line Katniss thought about Tigress being the embodiment of capital shallowness, mm-hmm. that I can be <laughs> a judgmental person. <laughs> yeah, just try, trying to remember not, not not to not judge people on their actions or, or their callousness to horrific things, but like not to judge people on internal things. You know, something like being shallow, it's like, how could we know? Just because somebody likes a particular thing or said a particular thing doesn't mean like that sums up their entire existence, you know? Mm-hmm. And so uh, trying to, yeah, keep in mind that it is not going to get very frustrated with people <laughs> the choices that they make. Uh, that, yeah, you know, we never really know what's going on in people's minds or everything that they've been through. Not that that excuses people from terrible actions. Right. But just thinking about this situation with Tigress, like... She's making that assumption based off of her appearance and mm-hmm. not really taking into account what it might mean to be a woman in the capital with the pressures of beauty standards and things like that. What it means to be a aging woman in the capital, you know, and one that's been in the public eye and, you know, stuff like that is just can make things more complicated or more painful at the very least. Uh, even if I wouldn't necessarily agree with the prioritizing of beauty like that, you know. Yeah. But, yeah. Hmm, that's good. What about you? My intention is to kind of act on the admiration I gave to Cressida because I think that I can often feel so unsure that any kind of direction is the correct one or is helpful, especially to Mm -hmm. others, that I kind of, I wait to get more direction. I think I would like to be a bit more like Cressida in being a bit more assertive and not necessarily thinking like me being assertive is me taking away options. It's just making the options or the things that I can provide more substantial. Mm-hmm. So yeah, that's that's my takeaway. Nice. Okay, well, that's going to wrap up our discussion of Chapter 23. So what's happening next time on The Hunger Games? So we are going to be moving on to Chapter 24, where Katniss and friends get a makeover. Ooh. Extreme makeover. War edition. <laughs> well, thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode of Geek Between the Lines. You can find links to our website, our social media, and our Patreon in the episode description. And we hope that you'll join us on Patreon at our new socialized levels where you can get access to all of the special content that we make and our upcoming live Zoom meeting with our patrons for any amount that you want to pledge. We also want to thank Kimberly Kuniko at Lacelet for designing our logo. You can find our designs at lacelet.com, Instagram, or Patreon. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next week. Until then, geek out. out.